Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. I had become really passionate about helping entrepreneurs finance their businesses differently. I kind of realized that venture capital is a really long time horizon and a lot of guesswork, and I'm not as good at guesswork as I am at math. When you're starting a business, knowing where your strengths lie is just as important as having a good idea. If we look at the assets and we look at the math behind the assets and we look at the defaults, we can come up with something that's a little more range bound, meaning we know where our upside is, we know where our downside is, and we can make a really good return. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. When you're a founder, you need creative ways to grow your business, and today's guest recognized that need and built her company accordingly. We're sitting down with Carrie Findlay, founder and CEO of Tacora Capital. Carrie has two decades of experience in structured credit investing at leading firms and as a private investor. She founded Tacora in 2022, securing $250 million investment from renowned venture capitalist Peter Thiel. From 2009 to 2017, Carrie ran the structured credit portfolio for Third Point, the multi-billion dollar hedge fund founded by Dan Loeb. She was the first woman and the youngest person, I might add, to be made partner at Third Point. And prior to that, she held similar positions at D.B. Swern and began her career at Morgan Stanley. Carrie serves as an advisor to Firework Ventures and 8VC and is on the boards of Hearth, Karis, Point Digital, and Architect. Let's enter the arena with Carrie Finley. I grew up in West Los Angeles and figure skated growing up and applied to, you know, every college that in theory would have me. And then after college, or I guess senior year of college, I applied to every job on the Columbia job board. And it was every job in finance, every job in consulting. And Morgan Stanley was one of the ones that had made me an offer. And they put me in ABS CDO research. I had no idea what that was, no idea what I was doing, but you just kind of go from there. <laughs> Change your life. In retrospect, before you got into kind of what you were doing, was there an area that you were interested in or were you just completely open to it? I was completely open. You know, in college, I really enjoyed classes like stochastic calculus and calculus and ordinary differential equations. I had no idea that that you know, was part of a single job and that was forecasting loan loss defaults. I really just went where they told me to go. 
And then went from Morgan Stanley. One of my clients tried to hire me. That ended up, I ended up going to work at DB's Wern. I just kind of followed the opportunities as they were available. As a young woman, and you're growing up and you're really good at math, everybody tells you to become a doctor. Yeah. And I, growing up in LA, finance was not a huge part of the universe. I didn't really know it was an option. I didn't really know it existed. I kind of thought my career options were being a doctor or following my dad and becoming a CPA. That's funny. My dad was a CPA too. But obviously you're a math person and you ended up at the right place. Interestingly, you sat kind of right at the intersection of the Wall Street securitization machine, you know, all the new fintech platforms that were being formed after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, like SoFi and Lending Club. What was it like in that moment of time when kind of everything was evolving, you know, right at the beginning? What was that like? I mean, it was really the Wild West and you were just hearing ideas and hearing entrepreneurs and hearing their dreams. And, you know, it was interesting because at first it was consumer lending and student loans. Yep. So you had the lending club, you had Prosper, you had a company called Affirm, a company called Upstart, you know, many of those are public today. And then you, in the student loan space, again, you had SoFi, you had a group called Common Bond, you had another group called Earnest, and you would see, you know, one trailblazer and then you'd see a couple other people either who were simultaneously working on a similar idea or, you know, maybe it came around because they saw what SoFi was doing and thought they could do it better. And, you know, on the debt side, unlike the venture capital side, you know, we wanted to finance all of them. In venture capital, that's a no-no. You back your one horse, you back the best company, and you try and figure out exactly who's going to be the best and who's going to be the one who wins. In debt, you know, they're all doing something a little different, but from a lending perspective, it's pretty similar. And you can say, okay, we want to finance a handful of different venture-backed businesses in the consumer lending space, and we want to be have as much exposure to this as we can. And that's where we were. I think... Most people, me included, thought the only assets at venture-backed businesses were kind of the IP. What are the assets in a fintech platform? You know, it can be a loan, a lease, a payment, a receivable. You know, with SoFi, we can just use them because that was one of the first, but they make student loans. So SoFi's entire proposition was everyone is lent to by banks and by Sally Mae to go to school at the same rate. And they said, okay... We know that half of you, or maybe more than half of you, are better than average, just definitionally. And so we're going to find all the students who are better than average and refinance them at a lower rate. And so they actually had those student loans sitting on their balance sheet. They actually also had the consumer loans sitting on their balance sheet. And so we look for both financial and or hard assets. In the case of SoFi, it was financial assets. And so we were looking at financing their consumer loans, their mortgages, and their student loans. It was, what do you have and how do we help you finance yourself at a lower rate than venture capital equity is uh, is going to get you? Yeah. How did the idea for Takora come to you? Like, what was your journey to start it? Take us through like how that happened for you. It was a lot of fits and starts. So um, I left Third Point. And, you know, obviously had become really passionate about helping entrepreneurs finance their businesses differently. And that was what I wanted to do. And so the first year that I was um, in Silicon Valley, I sat with many different venture capital firms. And for a while, I thought I might want to do that. And then 
I kind of realized that venture capital is a really long time horizon and a lot of guesswork. And I'm not as good at guesswork as I am at math. And for the venture capitalists, they're finding an entrepreneur with an amazing dream and backing them to try to help them change the world or at least change their industry. And there's just a lot of things that can go wrong. But if we look at the assets and we look at the math behind the assets and we look at the defaults, we can come up with something that's a little more range bound, meaning we know where our upside is, we know where our downside is, and we can make a really good return. But so I spent a day a week at a bunch of different venture firms, kind of did what I call a tour around Silicon Valley and realized that going back to asset-based lending or structured credit and applying it to venture-backed businesses was still my passion. I had a previous fund called Grenit and Grenit had a similar thesis we were negotiating with one of our backers from Grenit to maybe do it just with them or, you know, kind of separately. And I was at Peter Thiel's house actually during the Austin ice storm of 2021. And he and I were talking about the idea and he said he'd love to back it and wanted to, to help get it off the ground. And so we shut down Grenit and uh, moved to launch Decora. Yeah. I mean, talk about an incredible endorsement from a brilliant person. What's it been like to work with him? Obviously, he brings capital to the table, but my guess is he brings so much more than that. I mean, he's just so cool and honest and high integrity and supportive. And it's been, you know, it was incredibly humbling that he made me the offer and I was, you know, kind of taken aback and so honored. And every interaction with him, I learned something. And that is, to me, the most interesting thing is you go to his house, you have dinner and you don't know what the topic's going to be. It's not usually the fund. It can be absolutely anything. World events, you know, strategy on what's going on with the economy. It can be forward-looking. But I've never left his house without having learned something new. And he's you know, been an incredible partner, an incredible backer. And I couldn't be more thankful and more grateful for him. Yeah, it's amazing. And again, just an amazing endorsement of what you're doing. You know, I know you have other investors. What kind of LPs are attracted to the strategy that you're implementing? Most of our investors are families. We do have one foundation and one university, but they are mostly families. And I think they're attracted to the high rate of current income. And so if you look at our strategy, you know, we charge way into the double digits when we make a loan. And it's not cheap, but we find companies that one, the assets they have can support the rate, the capital they have can support the rate, and we distribute that income. And so it's a great income stream for a family that needs consistent income, that wants an annual coupon. It's also you know, great for people like endowments who have to pay for the school every year and have to pay for students' financial aid and for the operating budget of the school. I mean, I think that the ideal investor is probably an endowment or foundation. You know, foundations have to distribute 5% a year at least. And so we give them the consistent income that they need for that. How's your version of venture debt different from financing solutions by other venture lenders? Like, how are you different? Yeah, so when I'm, you know, if I'm on the board of a company, I look at if they take out venture debt, it's a runway extension. It's just cash on their balance sheet. And if something goes wrong, the venture debt owns the business. We are just different and separate in a different structure. So if you have those student loans that we talked about earlier, we take them off the balance sheet we put them in an SPV and we file a UCC lien against them. And if the company has an issue, 
It doesn't necessarily mean the asset has an issue. So we could have a company that goes out of business and our lien and our assets can continue to do well because we can run them off. We have a backup servicer ready, somebody willing to collect payments on those assets. And we look at them as we are lending against the asset. And if the company does well, we have a little bit of warrants. If the company does very well, they'll refinance us out, they'll get bank debt, and we'll you know cheer them on from the sidelines. But we aren't as stuck to the next round. We're not saying... You know, company A, if you don't raise your next round, we're going to be taking over your business. You know, we could take the student loans and they could start over and they could build more student loans or they could pivot and do something else. And we want the best for them. We always want them to succeed, but we are downside protected by the value of the assets we lend against. And if we make a mistake, it's the asset value of the loan we made. It's not usually the company. Would you rather be at the later stage if you could, or does it not matter that much because you're doing all the work on the value of the asset. So the later stage companies are usually bank financed. We look at, you know, there's a company that I love and did their initial loan. It's called Divi Homes. Divi Homes went from a consortium of small investors to a bank and they took down their cost of funding, I believe, by over a thousand basis points. Would I rather Divi Homes lend to me at my rate once they're stabilized and built their asset, of course, but that's not best for them and that's not best for the ecosystem. So they go from someone like us to a bank. They take their cost of financing down from what's called it startup rates to more mature rates. And, you know, I expect our business to have in this fund about 15 investments. I expect five to, let's just say, realize that this product they're offering either didn't product market fit or didn't work. We expect five to go to a lower cost of capital fund. Think someone like Blackstone or a really large fund. And I expect a third of them to go to a bank. And I expect them and their asset to have not a lot of volatility, have very consistent cash flow. And a bank will wake up one day and say, wow, that's a cash flow we can get a better yield on than the treasuries, than corporate debt. And we really like it. And it's consistent and it's not volatile. And so we're going to lend against it at a higher LTV than Takora would, but also at a lower rate. And we want those companies to take that debt because it's better for them. Our equity, our warrants appreciate, and we want them to be able to move on from us. Yeah, it's like a huge win-win for everybody, right? And you, you build a great reputation that way over a long period of time. I know you focus on like fintech and insurtech and prop tech. Why is that the area of focus for you? It's because those companies have the most assets. So if we looked at a software company, they wouldn't have any assets for us to finance. In the fintech, insurtech, and prop tech spaces, they're newly, let's call it, funded by VCs. 15, 20 years ago, most VCs were not backing businesses in the fintech, insurtech, and prop tech space. And when they started backing those businesses, they provide them operating capital. And then over time, those businesses have assets on their balance sheet, and it becomes most efficient for those businesses to move it off balance sheet. And so those are the three industries where we can most help that business have a better capital structure. You know, if you think about an insure tech, they may just be finding customers and underwriting insurance and then selling it to someone like Nationwide we can help them hold their own risk. We can lend them money to buy their own carrier, to buy their own captive, so that they are then participating in the upside of what they're building. There's not a lot of other industries that have assets, but if you know if someone does have assets and they're not in one of those three industries, 
we'd love to meet with them. We've seen a handful of businesses in logistics and in software that do have some assets, but it's more common that you'll see them with a fintech and insure tech or a prop tech business. For listeners who might not be uh, as familiar with what you do, I think case studies are super helpful. Maybe you can tell me about one of your portfolio companies, Fine Digs, and how you're able to help them. Yeah, so a company like Fine Digs is trying to get into insurance, is trying to get into property management themselves. And so they started with software. They started with selling software to residential real estate landlords. And over time, a company like that sees places in their software where they can offer insurance, where they can offer a financial product. And so we're able to help them by looking at how they can finance those products. And we're able to help them, whether it's us or another source of capital, be able to kind of optimize for themselves and optimize for the landlords that they're serving. Being connected to tech hubs throughout the United States is crucial to developing new business at Decora, but there's much more to it. I asked Carrie where her deal flow primarily comes from. You know, I mentioned that I spent that year in my tour around Silicon Valley. There were a bunch of VCs that I met that see deals. You know, it's everyone from Mark Andreessen's, uh, an investor in, in Tecora. They've been a great source of deal flow for us. Joe Lonsdale and some of his entities are investors. Obviously, the same with Peter and other venture firms that Peter has helped start as well. But it's way beyond that. It's everyone that I met in Silicon Valley. And it's also other debt providers. You know, someone goes to one of our competitors, but they really do more venture debt than asset-based debt. They may send them to us. So we see deals from probably 15 or 20 different venture funds consistently. And then on top of it from other lenders and then from other entrepreneurs. You know, we have this one great entrepreneur who actually I met when I was about 14 years old and we were reconnected through someone who was at another lender who thought we'd be a better lender for them. And then in his space, he's a mentor to other people who were trying to do venture-backed roll-ups and he's introduced us to a handful of other entrepreneurs as well. So it comes from all sides and we you know, obviously love it when our entrepreneurs send us another entrepreneur because that's the best vote of confidence. 100%. Let's talk about the current environment, which I think is so fascinating how it relates to what you're doing. You know, obviously, an un unprecedented rate hikes, a lot of uncertainty in the macro environment. Does the current environment allow you to be way more selective in your deals? How do you relate what's happening out there to what you're doing? I mean, I would actually say that it's not just selective in the deals, it's selective in our terms. You know, we really care about the asset. And last year, we had a bunch of term sheets that we signed with companies where they got a better covenant from another lender. And or, you know, SVB started trying to get into our space and they would get a better deal from them. And we had many signed term sheets that didn't lead to deals last year because the company got better terms away from us. And we just weren't willing to give. And what I say is that the market was tight. It felt very tight. Anytime we had a deal, there were three or four other term sheets and we couldn't really move forward on, on the deals we wanted at the terms we wanted. And I'm not one who likes to force things. And so I just kind of sat back and said, okay, you know, if this is the environment for the next four or five years, we might not have a business. But when SVB kind of failed in early March, things really changed. And at first we started seeing the companies that needed capital kind of immediately. And then we started seeing companies that had more 
medium and longer term needs. And now we're looking at those companies that I would say were some of the best companies that, you know, either drew on half of a deadline from someone like SVB or Signature Bank or, you know, some sort of covenant they've tripped and need more room. And we're able to look at those companies and pick the ones that we like the best and then give them terms where we're comfortable that, you know, no matter what happens, the asset value will cover our loan. Yeah. It must take tremendous discipline to do what you do. How do you not like kind of try and take a little bit more risk than you should in that environment? How do you keep that discipline? It's really, really hard. I bet. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, you've given your investors a, you know, a draw schedule for what you're expecting and now you're not meeting it and now you're behind. And then, you know, kind of the people make comments like, oh, they're behind. Maybe they just don't have good deal flow. And it's a little bit of a cycle and you just have to deal with it. And I actually would say that Peter was the best when it came to that. He always said, don't force things. There's going to be better opportunities tomorrow. Don't worry. I don't care about the draw schedule. I want you to make great loans and run a great business. And so having the pressure off from him really helped me to have the confidence to be able to make better decisions. You know, I was scared of our of our other investors, you know, being nervous about our deployment schedule and they couldn't have been more supportive. Every single one said, we just want you to find good deals. We don't care. And that was an incredible vote of confidence. You know, I went to all of them and made sure they knew that, you know, we had a bunch of term sheets signed and we weren't, the deals weren't closing because we weren't getting the covenants we needed. And this year, everything has changed. Yeah. So how about the pace of like just generally venture investment? It's obviously slowed considerably since the pandemic peak. Where do you think it's going to go from here, Carrie? I think we're going to see a swift rebound. You know, I'm one of the few who believes that, but, you know, I know how if you show me an incentive, I'll show you what the most likely outcome is. And these venture capitalists still have billions of dollars on their books. And I know that they're going to put it to work. If their two choices are put it to work or return it to their LPs, I would bet you that we see that money put to work. You know, I've seen very few funds announce they're shutting down, give money back or cutting their size. And I, I think that if we saw that, you'd see the other outcome, which is that we'd see less investment. But if you're sitting on billions of dollars and you have two to three to four years to deploy it, I believe it's going to get deployed. And you think there's going to be less institutional capital available in the coming years? For venture, absolutely. You know, you look at an endowment and they made as many investments as they could to get venture exposure because it was the best performing asset class. But as they get less money back because less companies are going public, they're going to have less capital to deploy in new funds. And I do think the best funds are always going to have more capital than they need, especially the best funds that have already been institutionalized. But I think that you look at investors who got in the space and, you know, we're expecting some sort of capital return. I think it's going to be very hard for them to put more capital to work without showing their board, their bosses, the capital return that they had expected when they made the investment. Yep. And then as it relates to entrepreneurs and people building businesses, how do you think they're going to have to adjust there, right? They're going to have to do more with less, correct? That's exactly the plan. I mean, I think if you look back 10, 15 years, you'll see entrepreneurs having done amazing things with not a lot of capital. Seed rounds got bigger, A rounds got bigger, and they thought the capital would always be there for them. 
I think that they're going to see a little bit of a different pace and they're going to try and get profitable faster. They're going to try and get cash flow break even faster. They're going to try and, you know, see how they do on a minimum viable product instead of building the entire product out before they go to market. And they're going to get there. And we're still going to see entrepreneurs build great businesses. We're still going to see entrepreneurs disrupt existing businesses. They're just going to have to do it with less. Yeah, it's just like so fascinating because everything just got super bloated like in the last decade. So it might just be a, you know, back to the old school way of bootstrapping things together and just being sharp with your capital allocation and all that, right? Yeah, I have one company that I'm very close with. And, you know, during his building process, something happened with his dad and his dad's name had kind of soured and they have the same last name and he was unable to raise capital and he has built an amazing business without the froth, without, you know, endless capital being thrown at him. And you look at his business today and you just have to be so proud of what he built. Now he has a business that's incredibly close to profitable. It's doing well. And I think it'll run cash flow positive probably for the next 10 to 20 years. But a lot of entrepreneurs could really learn from someone like him because he uh, he dealt with during the boom time what they're dealing with during the bus time, but it's doable. Yeah, and he's tough as nails as a result, probably, right? Yes, he is. He's, he's going to do great things. Yeah, so the term we haven't really talked about is kind of non-dilutive capital. That's kind of where venture debt comes in and, and what you're doing. It seems to me that in some of the financing rounds, some companies are probably faced with down rounds or you know, not the valuation that they want, it seems like a perfect sweet spot for what you're doing. I mean, we hope so. You know, a lot of those companies don't exactly fit what we're doing, but some do. I mean, we've seen companies that got, you know, billion dollar valuations from some of the growth, you know, the growth investors that you've heard of. And, yeah, you know, now they're looking at 10, 20 million of revenue and they're looking at a valuation closer to two to 300. A lot of it has to do with, do they have a business model that works? And at some scale, will their business be cash flow positive? And then do they have an asset that we can help them finance in the meantime? And for about you know, two-thirds of the companies we've seen, the answer is they just don't have an asset. And so they obviously want to be able to take venture debt. They want to be able to do an asset-based finance program. But some of them just don't have the right asset. And with those, we haven't been able to move forward. But there are some that do. You know, We're looking at companies that are in the insurance space, in the robotic space, that got some really hefty valuations. And now we can give them a loan against their assets and hopefully they can double revenue while they're borrowing from us. And then they can go and get that same valuation. But it's very hard with pref stacks and liquidation preferences and all the bells and whistles that the growth investors put on their investment. And they do it to protect themselves and do the right thing for their LPs. But now they're in a situation where some of these companies just can't finance themselves. And I've seen everything, pay to play rounds. If you don't participate, you lose your preference, all sorts of different, uh, different ways to make companies be able to succeed. Switching gears. So you settled in Austin, Texas. And after your tour of, uh, of Silicon Valley, how come you didn't stay there? Why did you decide on uh, Austin, Texas? Like what's going on down there that's so uh, compelling and interesting? So I actually did stay in Silicon Valley for a handful more years. During COVID, I mean, I just wanted to be able to go to a restaurant. It had been six months inside, and a good friend of mine, Joe Lonsdale, 
told me he was moving the whole community to Austin. And what he's done for Austin has been nothing short of remarkable. He's moved companies there. He's moved his team there. He's moved engineers there. I mean, you know, his wife tells this like funny story that we were playing this game called Magic the Gathering on a Saturday night in Woodside at Joe's house. And then he moved to Austin and whether it was a week or two later, everybody from the Magic the Gathering game was in Austin playing around their dining room table uh, and everyone had moved. And That's crazy. Yeah, it's so funny, but they're great. And what they've done for Austin has been incredible. Joe's building a university. He's it, looking at you know helping to build some towns. He's building an elementary school. He's really stepped up with the temple. It's been unbelievable to see what he's done, taking this city and helping bring it to the next level. So before we got there uh, and before he got there, Gigafund existed, Trust Ventures existed, and they were already doing great things for Austin. And they were already helping build an ecosystem. But then to have a firm like 8VC, which I think is much bigger in size than the others we've seen, come in, really build a community, bring entrepreneurs, bring their whole teams, bring companies. And it's just been an influx of really great people that are really interesting, high quality, ethical And it's been a really great group of people to be around and learn around. And yeah, it means I travel a little bit more. The amount of kind of spread from Silicon Valley to what used to be considered second tier cities has been unbelievable. And, you know, I'm thankful that Joe convinced me to try out Austin. I've now been there for about three years and it's been a, it was a great decision. It's an interesting point. Entrepreneurs might've thought that they needed to be in Northern California no matter what. 10 years ago, they can kind of do, do it anywhere right now, right? Absolutely. I mean, I've seen, I've seen companies in places I never thought I would. But you know, to build an engineering team, to build a sales team, you have to have a population and you have to have a university or two. And Austin obviously has that. Miami has that. Atlanta has that. If you didn't have you know, the stream of hiring, I think it's very hard to build a business. And so if you go to a city that has a top-tier university, you have the success and you kind of have the pipeline you need to build a business. I know you do a lot of thinking about the future and obviously uh, Takora's role in that, but how does the banking model evolve in the next 20 years? I mean, I really hope that another entrepreneur goes and starts the next Silicon Valley bank. What they had was really special and obviously have risk controls, have a risk officer, have the things that you need to make sure you're protecting the assets. But I think that having banks that are kind of serving ecosystems is really important. I mean, whether it was First Republic Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, I think they were all really important institutions that really helped to change industries. And, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're running a successful business, you eventually want to get married, buy a house, have kids. And traditional banks won't always give you that option of helping you buy that home. And so having a specialty lender in the ecosystem who could do that, I think is important to the ecosystem's success. And I really hope that someone figures it out in a way that Silicon Valley Bank did. Obviously, at the end, things went a little awry there, but that they can do that with more risk controls and you know help the next, the next batch of entrepreneurs buy homes and be able to get the liquidity they need while still running their business. Yeah. And given all of that, where do you see yourself down the road in a few years? Well, I think there will always be a need to help early and mid-stage companies finance assets. We hope to always be there. 
Over time, we'd love to have a second vehicle that has a lower cost of capital, you know, whether that's a separate fund or a BDC. But, you know, as I said, you know, 33% of our companies end up getting their second loan from someone like Blackstone. You know, after we've built the relationship and worked so hard at helping this company get off the ground, at some point in the future, we'd love to have a separate vehicle to be able to keep those companies in house. And then over time, you know, if PropTech should be financed by a REIT, we'd love to have a REIT to help finance PropTech businesses. If a BDC is the right option, we'd love to have that. It's all about having the best vehicle with the best terms that does a great job for LPs, but also serves the needs of the entrepreneurs that are building companies and innovating in those spaces. And so over time, it's a series of different vehicles that all have different focuses, but all kind of help these early stage companies and early stage systems. Takora Capital might be new on the scene, but Carrie Finley is not. She has decades of experience, and the company is backed by her incredibly accomplished partner, Peter Thiel. They're obviously executing at a very high level. There's a lot of opportunity, and it's so exciting to see a company like this launch. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Carrie Finley for being on the show today. I love her approach with Decora, and it was great to hear about the solid partnerships she's growing along the way. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.